We'll hear argument next in number 99-536, Roger Reeves versus Sanderson Plumbing Products, Inc. Mr. Wade. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. When the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit threw out this jury verdict and found the facts differently from what the, Fifth Circuit, from what the jury found them, the Court of Appeals offended fundamental principles that this Court has announced time and again. This Court time and again has said that not, that not only the facts but the inferences to be drawn from the facts is a jury question. Over and over again, from old decisions, new decisions, as recently as 1999 in the Hunt case, in as colorful a language as uh, the Chief Justice said in the Aikens case, when the Chief Justice said that the state of a man's mind is as much a fact as indigestion. In Justice O'Connor's decisions, when she said again and again that when you eliminate all uh, reasonable explanations in a, for an employer's decision, then an inference can be rationally drawn that discrimination was a real reason. Your Honor, in this case, there was a rational inference that, it, and in fact, the business and what. Excuse me, why, why, yes, why is that? I'm sorry, Your Honor. Why is that? Why is this rational, yeah. Your Honor? Uh, why, when you eliminate all, all, uh, all rational reasons, the only other irrational reason is discrimination? I mean, there, there could be or age discrimination or race discrimination. There could be other irrational reasons. I just don't like the way you comb your hair. Yes, Your, your Honor, there no, could you. be, but, in this, but, but this Court has said again and again that we leave it to the jury. There could be any reason. That's true of any factual question. Anything could have happened. But we, but normally don't, we normally don't let a jury flip a coin. We, we normally do say that, you know, there has to be some, some basis for your conclusion. Yes, and Your Honor, in this case, this was a long way from a coin flip. In this case, what happened was we had a man that's 57 years old that's worked at the same plant for the same place for 40 years. He's replaced by people in their 30s who, according to the employer, are less efficient. According to the employer, they're less efficient. In addition to that, we introduce evidence that the, the younger supervisor and the older supervisor are treated far differently. In addition to that, we introduce evidence that the man is making the decisions with absolute power according to our evidence. Well, Mr. Wade, you've presented three rather specific questions. Uh, one is whether the prima facie proof of age discrimination coupled with evidence of sufficient to support a finding that the employer has not offered a true reason for an adverse employment is sufficient to sustain a jury verdict. Then the second one is whether on passing, for a, um, passing on a motion for judgment of law under Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 50, court can consider all the evidence or just the evidence favoring the non-moving party. And then three, whether the stand for, standard for granting summary judgment under Rule 50 is the same as that for granting Rather, judgment uh, as a matter of law under Rule 50 is the same as summary judgment. May, may, are, are you addressing each of those in turn, or is this kind of a general? Your Honor, this first one addresses the first issue, that is, what evidence is necessary to take the case to the jury. That's the first one. But they do all blend together, Your Honor. Yeah, but don't that. blend them too much, because right. some of us may think they're separate. Yeah. Thank you, Your Honor. Need to go any further? Your Honor, we think it's very important that we do because this, this test that the Fifth Circuit has of all evidence, what it's resulted in is the, is the, is the judges accepting as true the evidence that the jury didn't believe. 
But it has to be in the light most favorable to the non-movement. It's supposed to be, Your Honor, but in practical effect, when they start considering all the evidence, when they say, for example, in this case, we say that Mr. Chestnut, this is a fellow that wrote his supposed boss, the one they claimed was his boss, and said, wake up and learn to do your job. We think the jury was entitled to believe that. But on the other hand, the Fifth Circuit, take, because they consider all the evidence, they say, oh, no, Ms. Sanderson made the decision. That's where we well, get into the But then maybe they applied that standard incorrectly. But if the standard, does it make a whole lot of difference whether it's all the evidence, just the petitioner's evidence, just the plaintiff's evidence, so long as you must uh, draw every inference, must read every piece of testimony in the light most favorable to the non-movement? Your Honor, Your Honor I do, respectfully, I do believe that it makes a difference because whenever you say all the evidence, that leaves you open to take evidence the jury didn't believe. Now, there, I know it's got the other phrase in it, which seems to, to me to be inconsistent with it in the light most favorable to the non-moving party, but we need to get rid of this phrase of all the evidence. That's what's causing the problem. Your Honor, I'm not smart enough to come up with a test, but Professor Wright, which is quoted in my, uh, in my brief, has got, to me, has got the sensible test. We eliminate the uh, evidence that's contradicted and uh, otherwise are, are impeached. Uh, this page 35 of my brief, Your Honor, we should take the non-movement's evidence together with any evidence from the other side that's, that's unimpeached, that's reliable evidence. So it does go beyond just the plaintiff's evidence? Yes, ma'am. I, I, the, the test that uh, Professor Wright, Professor Wright studied all these cases, Your Honor. I'm not smart enough to figure all this, but he studied all this, and he's taken all the courts of appeals decisions, and he said that is too broad. And the trouble with it in this case, and time and again, the Court of Appeals takes the evidence that the jury didn't believe. That's not consistent with the, with the right to a jury trial, Your Honor. And Your Honor just said in this Weisscram case you talked about uh, two weeks ago where the uh, appeal short, uh, Court of Appeals should be constantly alert to the trial judge's firsthand knowledge of the witnesses. The decision makers feel for the case. We ought to be giving deference to the jury. We ought to be, we ought to be paying attention to what they found. That's what the right to a jury trial means. So, yes, Your Honor, I think that test needs to be done away with. That's the source of the problem. That's well, what, what, what about, uh, what, what's your position on evidence produced by the moving party that is not impeached or contested? I think Your Honor's already settled that, that that would have to be accepted, Your Honor. Your, Honor's already, your well, Honor has already settled that question. What and, about evidence? Well, in, how did, when did we settle it? Your Honor, you settled it in this Lesage uh, summary judgment case, which I think the standards are the same. And in the Lesage summary judgment case, there was evidence that this applicant, he was saying it was race discrimination. They had conclusive evidence. He was like 50th down the line. He never would have gotten into school anyway. So, so Your Honor, so, said conclusive evidence from the other side. So then you would agree that the summary judgment standard is the same as the uh, Rule 50 standard? With only one exception, Your Honor. When we get to the appeals court level, when we get to the appeals court level, in the summary judgment standard, there's a de novo review. We, we review de novo. That's appropriate because it's on, the, it's on the record. It's on the papers. But in this case, Your Honor, he, we've got a jury that sat here and listened to the witnesses one by one. A trial judge, a very experienced trial judge, good trial judge, listened to the witnesses one by one. He says there's enough evidence. There ought to be uh, no, but given the, to that the, 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 I, I think you're wrong there, if I, if I may say so. That the, the trial at this stage, when you're talking about judgment as a matter of law, you're not supposed to be evaluating the truthfulness or the veracity of the witnesses. 
You're not supposed to be, Your Honor, but in fact they are. That's what has to have happened. There's no other way this verdict. Well, shame on them. I, I don't know why we should uh, we, we, we should validate that by giving it some special uh, special manner of review. They're supposed to be doing it as a matter of law. Well, Your Honor, it, it's it, it's called a matter of law, but in fact it's an evaluation of the evidence. It's called a matter of law to make it appealable, but in make it a, a question of law for appeal. But in fact, it's an evaluation of the evidence. Well, I think you're confusing a motion for a new trial. Where we do, where the appellate court is supposed to give some deference to the district court, with the judgment as a matter of law, which, as you say, is de novo. Yes, Your, your Honor, for court, please. I, I, I know Your Honors have said, as a matter of constitutional law, they have to give deference when they're reviewing a motion for a new trial. But I believe that the same rationale applies because, Your Honor, the jury and the trial judge heard the witnesses. Well, the, they, they heard the witnesses. Therefore, we should give the deference to what they thought about the testimony. It's Mr. Wade, is it, is it your position that a plaintiff is always entitled to get to the jury in a case like this if he establishes that the employer's stated, articulated reason for the employment action is false? Your Honor, I, I hate to say, as uh, Justice Scalia said in the law review article I just wrote, I, I hate to say never. You know, I, I can't say there's not some extreme case to everything, so I can't say that we can't come up with some extreme case. There might be a third unarticulated valid reason for the action. Conceded. Your Honor, all I can say is if we have a situation like we have in this case, where we've disproved, we've, got, we've done all we do. I mean, Justice Scalia says, well, maybe they just didn't like him. Well, Your Honor, the jury saw Mr. Reeves. He's one of the most likable fellows I ever met. He's worked there for 40 years. What do they mean they didn't, that the jury might have said that they just didn't like him? The jury didn't believe that. They saw him. How could anybody not like Mr. Reeves? So that is, a, that is an inference that the jury was entitled to draw, that he's a very likable fellow, and the reason they fired him was account of his age, and he made those age comments corresponding with about the time they started this investigation, which I believe, which the jury believed, doesn't matter what I believe, was a big lie and a hoax. And that's what the jury was entitled to find. And it's very rational, Your Honor, to say that we prove he's 57, we prove he's worked there 40 years, we prove you replace him with people you admit that are less efficient. It's very rational to say, well, you fired him on account of his age, especially when you start lying about who made the, deci- who made the decision. And the real decision maker was a fellow that made the age comment. Your Honor, this case, uh, This case, when you say lying, I mean, you know, all it requires is that the jury think it uh, more likely than not that the employer's explanation was not was not the true one. Might be close, and the jury says, "Well, you know, on balance, I think probably that's not the correct explanation." And your position is that so long as a prima facie case has been made, no matter how weak that prima facie case. Once the jury rejects the, uh, the as pretextual, the, the, the employer's explanation, the verdict has to go for the uh, — No, Your Honor, I, I believe we have to introduce evidence. Not only — we get beyond a mistaken business judgment. We introduce evidence that they lied about it, not that they had some disagreement or some business judge, as Mr. Smith calls, and as District Judge Center correctly instructed the jury. Not that they just had a disagreement about whether, they, uh, whether he was making these falsifications of time records or not. We, we introduced the evidence to find it was all a big hoax. It was a lie. And once they find it's a lie, and once we introduce evidence that points to age, such as age statements, and they don't introduce anything else, they never came in and gave any explanation about why they lied, and they were caught lying time and time again, then it's rational for the jury to infer 
that it was age. Your Honor, but, but, but you, you would, I, I, I take it your answer is that in this case you introduced more than simply the prima facie case, we, and you introduced more than simply showing that the pretext uh, that the uh, uh, employer's alleged reason was false. You we, say that we, we but did, our Ron. question is, uh, as a matter of law, may you go to the case if you have just a prima facie case and showing that the employer's asserted reason is not true? Yes, so long as it's a showing not on, that it's, that it's, uh, that has mendacity. I call it lies because I'm not, it, we, we got to show that they lied about it. I think, Your Honor, well, in a general it, rule, it that depends, would be sufficient. It depends to go to the on, this, uh, on the strength of your representation no, so of the employer's uh, asserted reasons? As long as the plaintiff introduces evidence of it, Your Honor. Of course, the, the court can't weigh the evidence and say, you know, they still claim they weren't lying, that they were telling the truth, but we introduced evidence that they were. Mr. Wade, may I clarify one thing? Because Justice Scalia asked a question. Yes, Are you claiming that if you have the prima facie case and you have uh, discredited the employer's proffered reason, that you win. I didn't take you to be saying that. I thought what you were saying was then you have a right to go to the jury yes, ma'am. with that. You may lose before sure, the jury. Might. jury could go either way. Your Honor, Your Honor, when Justice Scalia wrote the opinion and just uh, everybody thought, when they told the plaintiff's lawyers, well, that's a very bad opinion for y'all. And I said, actually, I think that's a great opinion because it lets the jury decide. You know, everybody was patting Justice Souter on the back and saying we, we should have gone with him. But it was, this was the opinion that lets the jury decide. We decide whether or not there was discrimination. So we, produce, we, we prove it's false, and then it's a jury question. Your, your, your Honor, Justice Scalia asked a while ago, is there anything left, uh, any limits on interstate commerce? I'd like to ask, is there anyth- any limits on what uh, anything left the jury is to do? Are they just figureheads? Do they have anything they can do? The Fifth Circuit, in this case, drew inferences in the defendant's favor. They take the evidence favoring the defendant, such as, well, you had three people because they believed it was three people involved. And they were all, so that we just draw the inference that it wasn't age discrimination. That's just totally contrary to the Seventh Amendment. Your, Your Honor, if Your Honors have no further questions, uh, I'll... Very well, Mr. Wade. You're reserving your... Yes, Your Honor. Uh, Ms. Millett. <laughs> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court... It is the province of the jury to draw permissible inferences from conflicting evidence presented at a trial. And the only question in this case is whether the jury's inference of age discrimination was permissible. It was. As a court of that isn't exactly how the question is phrased, unfortunately. Uh, I mean, if we were just reviewing the verdict, you might be right. But it says, uh, basically, whether... Uh, the defendant is entitled to judgment as a matter of law when the plaintiff only produces evidence of a prima facie case of discrimination and that the legitimate non-discriminatory reason uh, articulated by the employer is false. Yeah. Bare bones. Now, actually, the petitioner says more evidence was introduced than that, and therefore there was plenty of evidence for the jury to legitimately find as it did. And how do we extract from the question presented uh, the result that you you ask us to achieve? Yes, we think even um, even if, if the additional evidence wasn't here, the outcome would be the same for purposes of the question of whether the case gets to the jury. And that is, if, if a prima facie case has been made out, 
That is, if the, if the employee has demonstrated that the most likely reasons for the discharge in this case were are eliminated, and if the employee also shows that the employer in a court of law, in the face of an accusation of age discrimination, and with control over the relevant information about the decision, comes forward with a false reason well, for you, the action. You, you say false, but isn't what you mean a sufficient basis for the jury to determine falsity, or do you, do that, it must be demonstrably false? I, I, I'm sorry. I do mean. I do mean. I do mean that a reasonable jury could infer that it is false. And when they've come forward with oh, that, no, you mean a jury can, did not conclude that it was true. If the jury was in equipoise, the jury would be free to disbelieve it or not to give it effect. It, I mean, it's not, not as though the employer has been accused, uh, ha, has been convicted of lying. Ab- absolutely not. But you have, in or, employment, dis- I'm sorry. Or even that the, that the jury has found it more likely than not that this is not the real excuse. The jury has simply failed to find it more likely that this was the real excuse. That, that, you know, that's not a whole lot. Well, it seems to me that in finding it more likely than not, it was age. They have also found it, unless you're talking about mixed motives, they have not found by preponderance of the evidence, that, and they don't have to, but the, oh, the okay, other explanation okay. is, that's, that's is, the, is, the, is the correct one outside of mixed motives. So then, uh, under your view, uh, only if in the case where the employer comes up with a reason, purportedly non-discriminatory reason for the discharge, only if that is unchallenged by the uh, plaintiff does the defendant get judgment as a matter of law. Yeah, yeah. If, if, if the defendant does not, I'm sorry, if the employee, the plaintiff does not put the in plaintiff. evidence, not only if it's unchallenged, they could challenge it, but not put in enough evidence that would allow a reasonable jury to disbelieve uh, or to reject that explanation. And they could challenge it just by cross-examination, I suppose. That's exactly what this Court said in Burdine, that a prima facie case accompanied by cross-examination may be sufficient to establish pretext for discrimination. You know, it, it, it makes it sound all plausible and quite reasonable when you use, use the expression a prima facie case, which in the law generally means, uh, you know, enough evidence to to make it more likely than not, uh, without any other evidence, that a certain thing is true. But in this area, what we have called a prima facie case is really something that is not very probative at all. Simply the fact that you're, you know, you're, you're within the protected age category and someone younger is hired to replace you. Did you really think that that makes it probable, more likely than not, that your age was the reason for your dismissal? What, I mean, both, you can call it a prima facie case, but in the, is it really? The prima facie case also includes the requirement that the plaintiffs show that the most likely explanations for the employment action have been eliminated. And I think, as Justice O'Connor said in Price Waterhouse, there's, at that point you have made a, almost a statistical showing, assuming silence by the employer that the more likely explanation is discrimination. And it's also important to keep it. Excuse me. I, I, I was not aware. The, 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 the plaintiff has to show that the more — it's his burden to show that the more likely explanations for the firing are, are eliminated? Ultimately, at the end. And certainly there's really even no reason to be discussing prima facie case here. But well, the, may, may the, I just the make a suggestion here? Aren't you uh, — is, isn't your argument, depending on the, on the requirement for the prima facie case, that it be shown that the employee who was fired — 
is in fact competent to do right. satisfactory work, is doing satisfactory work. That, exactly. That's, that's exactly. There's two, there's two things. It's, they have to show that they are qualified. That is another prong of the prima facie case and that the position remains open outside the risk context. But qualified doesn't necessarily require him to come in and show that he was doing a good job, just that he has qualifications for the job. Isn't that right? Yes. The, the prima facie case, and we're, we're not here to say that um, once, once an employer, and this is the case when the employer has spoken and has given an explanation, that the prima facie case all by itself without calling into question uh, in a way a jury could, that would support a jury verdict, the employer's explanation, the prima facie case in isolation gets you to a jury. And there's a mandatory legal presumption when the defendant is silent, but when they aren't, then we have to look at the ultimate question of whether there's evidence from which one could infer discrimination. But in that process, there, there are two things in this case that make it a reasonable inference. Maybe not the only inference, but a reasonable inference. Certainly the falsity or the discrediting of the employer's explanation, but also the fact that the employee has shown, I'm qualified for this job. There, the job was still there. And it is not irrelevant that these, these statutes, the Age Discrimination Act and the Title VII, involve a showing that you have a characteristic that employers historically have used. It's now prohibited, but historically and pervasively have used to make employment decisions. Well, if we, decide the, if we decide the case on the basis that you're talking about, we really didn't need to grant certiorari. I mean, it, it would seem rather clear that perhaps the case should have gone to the jury. But the, the, the question... The first question is, is a more specific one than that, without the additional evidence you're talking about. No, I think, the, I, I, think I'm, I think I mean to be talking about the first question, and that is in which, which there is a conflict in the circuits, and that is whether what is called the prima facie case, the proof underlying the prima facie case, combined with the proof demonstrating the falsehood of the employer's explanation, is those two alone are sufficient to create a reasonable inference, to permit a reasonable inference by a jury. And that's what this Court said. In and the, isn't the difference that the prima facie case, if the employer puts in no defense at all, then it is judgment as a matter of law for the plaintiff. Once the employer comes up with a reason, then, and, and then the plaintiff casts doubt on that reason, still the ultimate burden of showing discrimination is with the plaintiff. But ordinarily, I think you said in your brief, that's enough. You have, you can draw an inference in favor of the plaintiff. You can, you don't have to, on the basis of the prima facie case, plus the rebuttal of the defendant's justification. That's abs- that's absolutely right. We agree with that. And what's extraordinary but here is that. But if you take that, that rule together with the rule that the jury is always free to disbelieve a witness, then you can go to the jury every time. That's not true because this court has said in Crawford L and Bose Corporation versus Consumers Union and Anderson versus Liberty Lobby, a plaintiff cannot just sit back and at summary judgment or judgment for matter of law stage and say. I've done nothing, but the jury could disbelieve the defendant's witnesses. They have to cross-examine. They have to put in counter evidence. But what's important here is we're I'm not, not sure we've said it can get to the jury no matter what other evidence there is. I mean, suppose there is the prima facie case. He was qualified. He was within the age uh, covered, and and the younger man was hired. Suppose, however, it is shown and uncontroverted that at the same time a younger man was also dismissed and replaced by someone who's even older than this plaintiff. That and, and, and then you, you mean to say that despite that uncontroverted evidence, all we look to is simply the prima facie case? We look to nothing on the other side at all? I'm, I'm not sure about that. 
I agree if there's nothing to counterbalance the prima facie case, I think you have to say the prima facie case uh, is enough to support a jury verdict. But when there's significant uncontroverted evidence on the other side, is that necessarily true? That significant uncontroverted evidence is an excellent argument to make to the jury, and it may be the inference that the jury draws. But one single hiring decision is not sufficient basis for knowing how this particular decision was made. The, ju- the, said- jury, the jury is free to disbelieve even uncontroverted, a, a witness whose testimony is not controverted, just because they think he might be telling a, telling a lie, I think. They are certainly free to do that. My only point was that at a summary judgment stage, you cannot simply respond with a uh, assertion that it may be disbelieved. But what's important to keep in mind here is we're not talking, we're talking about, I'm sorry. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Ms. Millett. Uh, Mr. Smith, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court, the respondent today would like to revisit three issues for the Court. Number one, we desire very briefly to discuss the standard which the appellate court and this court must use in determining whether or not under the sufficiency of evidence test a matter should have been submitted to the jury. Secondly, We want to revisit and explain respondents' position as to its interpretation of the meaning of this Court's opinions in Hicks and Hazen paper. Third and finally, it is the position of respondent that regardless as to whether this Court accepts what respondent contends Hicks and Hazen represent, or even if we accept what we think is clearly the erroneous interpretation of, of a petitioner and, in some respects, the Solicitor General as to the meaning of Hicks, still in this particular case, wherein your honors have held in other cases, demand individualized proofs and assessment, that there is still no jury issue. To go to point... You're going to deal with each of the three questions yes, presented in yes, your honor. argument? Yes, yes your honor. With respect to point one, the standard of review under the sufficiency of the evidence test, briefly, this Court, since at least 1872 and going through a month ago today, has held and reaffirmed that a court such as the District Court under Rule 50 motion, the Appellate Court on review, must look at all of the evidence but in the light most favorable to the non-movement. Now, we ask, why is that? The purpose of that is in the uh, Improvement Company versus Munson case, cited in the Product Liability Council's brief filed uh, uh, in support of respondent. That was one of the first cases where the court held that the mere fact that there may be some evidence that's introduced does not necessarily mean that the quantum is there to warrant a jury determination. And the court held there in Improvement Company versus Munson that it was the function. There was a preliminary question for the judge to determine whether or not under the substantive law involved there was sufficient evidence to warrant a jury determination. I think, Your Honor, in, in the case of Anderson versus Bessemer City, actually cited by a petitioner in his brief on another point, is very determinative of the fact because there, in that case, the court held that in determining under the sufficiency of the evidence, 
that there were certain general principles which must be reviewed and which Your Honor stated derived from our cases. One uh, being was, those were bench. The Anderson versus Bessemer was a bench trial, was it not? It, it was, Your Honor. But this same theory has has imbued in all of the cases with regard to what evidence, what is the standard, what evidence is reviewed to determine. In that case, as well, I believe in the Pennsylvania versus Chamberlain, the court held and Anderson versus Liberty Lobby, the court held that a court must review all the evidence in conjunction with the substantive law to determine if on the entire evidence, and I repeat, those two words have been, have been stated in almost all of your decisions, on the entire evidence, the court, the reviewing court is left with a definite and firm conviction that a mistake has been committed. Well, but th- well, th- that's the clearly erroneous rule. That, that has nothing to do with jury trials. Well, I, I think it does, Your Honor. I think in all of the cases in which you've, you've held that, as well as all of the circuits, and I don't think there's any disagreement among the circuits, that in order to determine if a reasonable and fair jury could find in favor of the party having the burden of producing the evidence, the court must yeah. review yeah, but, all the evidence. Okay. What you just said makes sense. What you said a moment ago, I think, is contrary to our cases, where you say you're convinced that a mistake has been made. That's the clearly erroneous rule for reviewing a bench trial findings by a district court. I think, Your Honor, that the, the rule meshes with respect to the function of an appellate court in determining under the substantive law, is there sufficient evidence that would warrant a fair jury in reaching a result in favor of a party having the burden? Mr. In- Smith, would you agree that what the judge is supposed to ask on a motion for judgment as a matter of law is, I have to look at this evidence and I must draw every inference possible in favor of the non-movement? If I draw every inference in favor of the non-movement, is there a jury question? Justice Ginsburg, I would agree with that with one caveat, and that is when we use the word inference, the inference must be based on evidence, not on speculation and surmise and not an inference upon an inference. Drawing every inference from the evidence. In other words, if a defendant could be believed or disbelieved, you disbelieve the defendant for purposes of making that assessment, that you must draw every inference from the evidence favorable for the plaintiff. That means whenever it could go either way, you must assume in favor of the plaintiff. Yes, Your Honor. If it's a he said, she said, then the reviewing court cannot determine which one is, is telling the truth or which one uh, is to be determined. The fact finder must do that. It's just, it's just he said, and, and, uh, and she doesn't, doesn't deny it. I think what Justice Ginsburg is saying is, uh, in, in the hypothetical I, I alluded but, to earlier, you can simply disbelieve that the that the employer in fact uh, hired older people, even though it's totally uh, non-controverted. Do you, you think that's uh, no, no, Your Honor, I do not, because uh, Your Honor's held in 1931 in, in Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad versus Martin that. While a jury has the function of determining the credibility of the witness, a a jury may not arbitrarily disregard undisputed testimony when there is no uh, reason for that. So I do not think — And that's built into the test that uh, Professor Wright, that that your friend quoted, Justice uh, — Professor Wright. Yes, Your Honor. 
And do, do you have any quarrel with that articulation no. of the test? No, I do not. So then you're both you're in agreement. That's great on that one question. You're both uh, in agreement on what the standard is. I, I would agree with her. Would you agree with Justice Ginsburg's statement of it if she'd said reasonable inference? You can't draw an unreasonable right. inference. Exactly. And, and, All right. With that modification, then we So have then we can take what yes. it says in Wright and Miller, and that's it, and pass on to other questions All right. in the case. Your Honor, let us now review and revisit, if you will, the respondent's interpretation of the teachings of this Court in Hicks and Hazen paper. Initially, to back up before Hicks and revisit Hazen, we know that the court there stated quite clearly that with respect to age discrimination, there is no disparate treatment if the reason is a factor other than age. These are some general principles I think it important to revisit. In Hazen, we also uh, discussed the fact that there, the mere fact that an employer may be violated ERISA, and or, I think, uh, uh, in the opinion of the court, may have, may have violated in, in another instance, in a hypothetical, uh, Title VII with respect to race was not evidence or an indication that age was the deciding factor. With that, I think we have to go forward then to Hicks and initially remember what were the general principles, as I read, Hicks to stand for. Number one, that no court may substitute for the required finding of the particular discrimination in issue, here age, the much lesser and different standard of simply disbelief of the employer's reason. The court time and time again in Hicks stated that there must be evidence both that the employer's reason was untrue and that age, or in this case age, was the motivation. Then doesn't Hicks also say, and indeed doesn't the Fifth Circuit say in other cases, that ordinarily what you have is the prima facie case. And in addition, you know one other thing. The lawyer wasn't telling, the, uh, the employer wasn't telling the truth when he gave his reason. Now, what I thought Hicks said and what I thought that Reeves said as well in the Fifth Circuit, Rhodes, I guess, in the Fifth Circuit, is in, in most cases that's the end of it. Of course the jury could, could, could infer from those two things that there was discrimination. Now, we concede there's a weird case, really weird. It was a pretext, but it was a pretext because the employer was an embezzler and he'd been found out by the employee. And I grant you in such a case it is a pretext but not for discrimination. So that's why there's always this qualification. But you have a case where the Fifth Circuit said, one, there's a prima facie case. Two, the jury could, may well have found a pretext. But three, it couldn't come to the conclusion of discrimination, at which point one wants to shout, why? Why not? I mean, after all, your employer client was not an embezzler. There's no evidence here that it's a weird case. So, so, therefore, I thought perhaps this decision of the Fifth Circuit, though not Rhodes, is inconsistent with Hicks, with Rhodes, and with a lot of other things, and that's what the SG says. So I'm very interested in your answer. Justice Breyer, I think first we must visit the decision of the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit made a, a statement 
Reeves may well be correct on this, something of that nature. But still, there's no evidence of, of, of age. Now, what was the Fifth Circuit talking about when they, when they made that statement? About two or three sentences before that statement, in their opinion, the Fifth Circuit said, Reeves alleges there's pretext because, number one, I attempted to be careful in my record-keeping. Number two, well, these errors were made by my boss, Russell Caldwell. And three, Sanderson could not really quantify the amount of money that may have been lost on this. I submit that's what the Fifth Circuit said the evidence of pretext was, and I think consistent with Rhodes versus Guyberson, the Eighth Circuit's decision, the Second Circuit in Fisher versus Vassar College, uh, the numerous other circuits, the Eighth Circuit decision in Rothmeyer versus Individual Investors, that the Fifth Circuit was stating and complying with what Your Honor said in Hicks when you stated there may be instances, I'll paraphrase, of course, when the prima facie case when and coupled with evidence of disbelief of the employer's reason, especially if accompanied by mendacity, may, may be sufficient without more. What I envision Hicks is saying there and what the, I think, the Fifth Circuit in Rhodes, the Eighth Circuit, uh, the Sixth Circuit, not the Sixth, the Fourth Circuit, and the Second, read that to mean is it depends what is the prima facie case? We know, as set forth by your honors in Hicks, and as the Second Circuit uh, Fisher case had a good, I think, discussion in a footnote, that there were over a hundred cases at quick blush. If I, if I could bring you back just one second for my the precise yes. response I was looking for. And if, if, the fifth, if, if in your, the opinion in your case, the Fifth Circuit had only said what you started out by saying, we wouldn't be here today. I mean, if they'd said there wasn't enough evidence of pretext, but that isn't what they said. What they said is, a reasonable jury could have found that Sanderson's explanation for its employment decision was pretextual. Reeves on this point very well may be right. So what I want to know is how, if they found it was pretextual and you had the prima facie case, how conceivably could there not have been discrimination? let alone a jury question. I mean, as I said, your employer was not a suddenly discovered embezzler. There is no evidence it was a pretext for something else. So how could it have both been a pretext? And yet, in your case, I'm not thinking of a statement of law. I want to know in your case, how could it both been a pretext and it, he wasn't fired for discrimination? Justice Breyer, the, the statement by the Fifth Circuit found that there may be pretext for disbelief of certain things that the Fifth Circuit pointed out that Reeves contended. I, if, if, I, I beg the Court to, to bear with me a second. I think if you, if you digest that with Hicks, we have to decide, as I was beginning to say earlier, and I think we'll, we'll, we'll answer your question, the prima facie case is a procedural device which enables a plaintiff to shift the burden of production to the defendant. If the prima facie case comes out in that skeletal form only, 
the one, two, three, four test of McDonnell Douglas. And if after the defendant articulates a non-age reason, the plaintiff then only, only introduces evidence, well, that's not true. Mr. Sanderson Plumbing, you didn't quantify the amount. Uh, Mr. Reed said that uh, his boss made those errors. You know, his boss was terminated too. If that's all that's present, I submit that Hicks says that is not enough because that does not show any evidence of age discrimination. On the other hand, if the petitioner's prima facie case does more, reaches out and gathers more than the bird, than the skeletal one, two, three, four of McDonnell Douglas, then coupled with evidence of disbelief of the employer's reason, there may be a jury question. Here, as I was going to say earlier, point three delves into that. What, what was the, the uh, petitioner's prima facie case first? They stated that Mr. Rees was over 40. Contention that he was doing his job satisfactorily. At this stage, we don't worry too much whether that was the prima facie case was made or not because your honors were held in Aikens at this point. It doesn't matter. But in any event, he was terminated and that he was replaced by a younger person. Now, this evidence also was undisputed that these younger people who replaced Petitioner in their 30s were also terminated at a later date. Also, the evidence shows that Mr. Caldwell, who was also terminated, was replaced by an older person. So we have that flimsy, weak, mechanical, procedural, prima facie case only. What else did, did the petitioner submit? Mr. Chestnut made two, as the petitioner says, age-related statements. What were they? One, supposedly, you must have come over on the Mayflower. Some more than more than two months before the termination. He was unable to quantify that, but much more than two months. The second, when Mr. Reeves was working on a piece of machinery, Mr. Chestnut supposedly said, because he couldn't get the machine going, you're too damn old to do that job. Now, your honors have hailed, and the circuit courts, every circuit has hailed, that if a remark, number one, is not made by a decision-maker, and I submit the evidence is uncontradicted. But isn't there a conflict in the evidence about whether this man really did make the decision? Isn't that one of the things that's in dispute? Your, your, your Honor, I think not. And let me point out why, if I, if I may adjust is he? Am I correct that he was married to the person who owned the company? He, he, at the time of the termination, Mr. Chestnut was married to the president of the company. Right. At the time of the termination, he was director of manufacturing. Now, the evidence is, un, remember, it's uncontradicted. Even though Mr. Reeves says, I think he was the absolute power, that testimony of Mr. Reeves has to do with the fact that as director of manufacturing, certainly out on the plant floor this man was. But Mr. the evidence. Smith, it was not just Mr. Reeves. Wasn't it the young man who, who also said, that as long as he's been with the company, um, something to the effect that Sanderson was the top boss. Y- yes, Justice Ginsburg, you're exactly right. There's Mr. Oswald, the 33-year-old gentleman who made the same errors, less errors than the petitioner, and who quit before he could be discharged. Well, let's talk about what he said. He stated that Mr. Reeves sometimes was hollered at by Mr. Chestnut was mistreated by him in that manner. 
He also said on the same pages of the records, pages 82 and 83 of the transcript, that additionally he, Mr. Chestnut, hollered at me some, and he hollered at Mr. Caldwell, Mr. Ray's manager, and that he was very rude to these people, and there was a lot of noise on the plant floor because of Mr. Chestnut. I mention that because, quite frankly, that's an evidence of the petitioner opening up a reason other than age, disliked by Mr. Chestnut. A good example, a good case of that is the Eighth Circuit case in, in Rothmeyer versus individual investors where the plaintiff. You didn't put on that defense that Sanderson disliked. You didn't make No, that. no, I, I did not, Your Honor, but just in the Rothmeyer case, the defendant did not put on the defense, if I may, that this man was terminated because he was going to report the company to the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission rather than age. And there they held with the petitioner. There demonstrated a clear reason other than age. Here, the testimony of Mr. Oswald gives a very sufficient basis for the allegation that he, Mr. Reeves, was mistreated. He but may have been. Argue, you could argue that to the jury, but Mr. Oswald said, here, I was doing the same thing with the records we all were, and I got yelled at some, but, boy, they really gave it to this man that they had told when he was trying to fix up a machine, you're too old to do the job. Nobody is suggesting that this is a case for some for some redisposition in favor of the plaintiff. The only question is, could the jury find, make inferences from that evidence that the reason was age discrimination? Justice Ginsburg, with all deference, I think that's a perfect example of when the jury could not. Because what evidence did they have? The two statements by your own decisions and every circuit was totally disconnected. Yes, no cause. How can you say totally disconnected? If the man who made the decision to fire him two months ahead of that time said you came over on the mail flower and you're too old for the work, can't I mean I'm not saying it proves anything, but may, could the jury infer that age had something to do with the decision? Under the decisions of this court as well as every circuit, no. You could not. It's a stray remark. It has no probative value, just as any other comment about someone being unkind or mistreating someone for some other reason. So it literally should have been excluded from evidence. That testimony should have been kept out. And that effort was made at the lower court. It could have been. But the point is And you it, say it the not, jury can do nothing with it. It should have been kept well, out. Well, it, it, it — Justice Souter first and then Justice uh, Ginsburg — the evidence was insufficient to bridge the gap in, 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 in the, either the prima facie case or the disbelief of the employer's reason because it simply was not probative under the substantive law that's been created as evidence of age discrimination. That's, that's the position of, of the respondent on this. I, I, but the, it's competent. It, I mean, you're, it's, I think what you're arguing is that a statement or those two statements standing alone with nothing else in the case would be insufficient to support a verdict. But it's a very different thing to say that that evidence is inadmissible, and it's a very different thing to say that that evidence is incompetent in the sense that it may not even be considered in the context of the whole case in deciding whether ultimately there was or was not age discrimination. And I think you're arguing the second point. Um, I I will will concede the first point, that standing alone 
Maybe it's not enough. Uh, but I think you're arguing the second point, that it is, that it is incompetent evidence. Am, am I right that that's yeah, your yeah, argument? Yeah, yes, Your Honor. Justice Souter, I am. I'm saying that those two statements, when digested with the entire evidence that the Court is required to review, does not indicate pretext for discrimination because the statements have no place in the termination decision or even the investigation decision of the audit. Remember this, Your Honors. Mr. Rees, contrary to his counsel's argument in the brief, never disputed or contested the accuracy of the audit, which revealed numerous errors on his part, numerous errors on Mr. Caldwell's part, and numerous errors on Mr. Oswald. He didn't contest that. Instead, he went off on things like, well, they never could figure out the total amount of it. Or, well, I think Mr. Chestnut really was the one who, who uh, uh, he's the power. He must have been the one who terminated him. But, but the evidence is to the opposite. Well, if you're right, then there was no pretext. There was, pardon your Honor? Then it wasn't a pretext. If you were right about this, it wasn't a pretext. That's correct. Uh, but, of course, right. the, the, the Fifth Circuit said the opposite. So what well, are we supposed to do about that? The Fifth Circuit, in finding that their Rees may well be right on three points, I, 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 I repeat. Say that. It said, it said that uh, it could have found, a reasonable jury could have found that Sanderson's explanation was pretextual. Y- yes, And it said, that's what it's claimed, and it said Reeves may very well be correct. Yes, Justice Breyer, you're exactly right. That's what the court said. But right before that, what they were talking about as pretextual were the three things I've mentioned, which, together with the weak, skeletal, procedural prima facie case here, does not show pretext for discrimination. Let, let, let me add that even if we, if, as I wanted to say earlier, even if we jump to the, to the petitioner's Conclusion, which is not supported by the Solicitor General in their brief, that each and every instance of mere disbelief of the employer's reason is sufficient. I cited in our brief the Sixth Circuit decision of Manzer versus Diamond and and showed that some of the other uh, circuits that I think erroneously have uh, followed uh, Hicks have stated that, well, even then, if we're going to show pretext, so that, that if the reasons are not true, truth, three things have to be proven. Number one, that the reason advanced is baseless, didn't exist. Well, there's no doubt here. There's no evidence. There's not even surmise here, and Mr. Reeves had a lot of surmise. Uh, there's no surmise here that the audit was not correct. There is no evidence that it was fabricated. It led to the discharge of two and would have led to the discharge of three had he been here. Number two, were the reasons sufficient to motivate the discharge. Well, obviously they were. They led to the discharge of Mr. Caldwell and would have led to the discharge of, of, Mr., of Mr. Mr. Oswald. Mr. Smith, you're arguing evidence. There was other evidence that you're not including in the picture. For example, Reeves was first accused of having dealt falsely with one particular employee. Well, it turned out Mr. Reeves was in the hospital on the days when she was supposedly written up incorrectly. There was also evidence that these time clocks didn't work so well and that it was standard operating procedure just to put down 7 o'clock when somebody was at the workstation at 7 o'clock. So you are picking out pieces of the evidence that tend in your favor, a great jury speech. You are ignoring evidence on the other side. 
And that's the problem with this case. It looks like it's a jury case. Justice Ginsburg, the, the points you mentioned were repudiated by uncontradicted testimony. Mr. Reeves made a general statement. I tried to be careful. Sometimes the time clocks didn't work. I, I, I'm going into specifics here. But the Let's evidence take my first point. Was that woman uh, who was the, the first the first explanation that Sanderson yes. gave is you put her down for being there and she wasn't. Was Mr. Reeves in the hospital? When Mr. The, Reeves went to the hospital later in that day, but he was present when, when the attendance records were made by the supervisor, Mr. Reeves, that day on her. Second, is that established in, I thought that Mr. Yes, that Mr. Was Reeves was contending he was, he was not the one, that he was not the one who did that, that Caldwell, in fact, did that. No, Mr. Reeves testified that he was there the first day that she went to the hospital and that he also came back before the week was over, Mr. Mr. Reeves, and it was his duty, if you will recall, to review the weekly records and make sure there was no error. He did, and he still listed her as being there. you saying there was nothing in the evidence that it was Caldwell who did it and not Reeves? No, Your Honor. No, I, I, do, I do not think so. In fact, Mr. Caldwell is the one who caught it on the monthly report and corrected it. And after Mr. Reeves had reviewed the weekly reports. There, there are many things that Mr. Reeves has stated based on his surmise and suspicion. But it's, it's in all deference, Your Honor, it's not evidence. It, it's his dislike of the reasons. I don't think I should have been terminated. Or maybe Sanderson made a mistake. Well, we know that a mistake does not equate under decisions from every circuit to age discrimination. So I submit, as I was finishing, in the one, two, three uh, standard in Manzer, the pretext, I use the word pretext only, and it's not a good term to use, circuit, that under that standard, if we adopt that standard that the petitioner wants us to use today, there is no evidence of a jury question. There were two other people who were either terminated or would be terminated. There were two other people, think about this, independent of Mr. Chestnut, who independently reviewed these records and made the recommendation to the, to the, uh, to the president that Mr. Reyes be terminated. There is no inference, no suspicion that these two were in any way connected with these two statements. So I, I guess I get back, Your Honors, to the very beginning of my argument when I stated that when you boil all of the evidence together, that's not a good way to say it, but I think that's one way to, to study the sufficiency of the evidence, that under the standard, I think it's correct. There's Thank no you, evidence. Mr. Smith. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Wade, you have six minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the Court. Your Honor, Mr. Smith's argument demonstrates why this is a jury question, Your Honor. The jury hears the witnesses one by one over a four-day trial. Mr. Smith comes in and tries to tell this Court, which he successfully did the Court of Appeals, what the facts were in the case. There's no way to do it. There's no way that a Court of Appeals can understand the facts of the case the way a jury can when it's heard the case, heard the witnesses one by one. I want to point out just a few of the things, Your Honors, that he said are just blatantly wrong. It's not true. It's not what the jury found. And just the thing that's most most striking about this case, when they had the man that made the age statements, Mr. Chestnut, and they made this totally fabricated effort to say that he wasn't the man making the decision, 
And we introduced a letter. Here's a letter we put in evidence that the jury had time to sit there and read and digest and consider the significance of this. He writes his boss a letter, supposed to be his boss, and he uses curse words. I'm here before the United States Supreme Court, so I won't purport to say what he said. But he said, when are you going to wake up and learn to do your job? That's what he's telling his boss. And two people, not just Mr. Rees, but the young supervisor said he's the absolute power. You have to please him to keep your job. The jury, Your Honor, is entitled to draw the inference that Mr. Chestnut is running the show, that he's in charge. The jury saw them both on a witness stand. She sat up there. He quotes her at length. It is like she'd memorized her testimony. She's a meek, mild person. He gets up there, and he's like the tyrant. The jury sees that. They can understand who's running the show. They're in the best position to make that decision. They had that, they had that within their discretion to make that decision. Uh, this business, the first thing he said was, the fact is, yeah, he answered those questions wrong, Justice Ginsburg. If your Honor, when your Honor reads the record, you'll see that's not right. It's not the attorney's testimony as to what the, what's in the record. It's the jury's decision to make. And the testimony, I believe you'll find, is uncontradicted to the contrary. That, in fact, Mr. Caldwell wrote Mr. Reeves a note and told him to give this lady the credit for these two days she is in the hospital. He acted based on the note that Caldwell told him, and the company knew that. And, Your Honor, in answer to these questions about, well, they fired Caldwell, we don't know why they fired Caldwell. We didn't try the Caldwell case. Caldwell's wife works at the plant. But I can tell you a hundred reasons. They might have, and, Your Honor's courts may be strange to this, but juries that work in factories know what happens all the time. They tell the supervisor, you fire Jones, and if you don't fire him, you're fired. We don't know what happened. We didn't try, we weren't there. We didn't try that case. That question, we can't just say, well, you, that's just another thing the jury can consider. Mr. Smith can argue that to the jury. He can say, well, they fired Caldwell, so it must not have been age. Caldwell's only 45. He can argue that. Let the jury decide that. And Judge Center told the jury, Judge Center, further, in order for the plaintiff to prevail, he bears a burden of, this is on page 7 of the transcript of the jury charge, he bears a burden of proving by preponderance of the evidence that the reasons offered for terminating him were not the true reasons, but rather a pretext for age discrimination. That's what he told them that they had to prove. This jury charge is a model. Judge Center's jury charge ought to be given by every district judge. It's a model of what this court said you have to prove, especially in the St. Mary's case. They had every opportunity to prove that they were telling the truth, and the jury believed they were lying. The report they made up, Your Honor, if you study that, and it takes some time to go through all those records. The Court of Appeals judge doesn't have time to do that. They're busy with more important things. They don't have time to study those records, but you study them. And the, what jury, the jury charge here says that the plaintiff can prove pretext if, by showing, one, that the stated reasons were not the real reasons for the discharge, and, two, that age discrimination was the real reason. You didn't, yes, sir. You didn't. I, I agree with that 100 percent. I mean, I, I know it's must, a lot. Must you have number two as well? I'm sorry, Your Honor? Why isn't number one sufficient under your view of the case? Because, Your Honor, he's the, 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 there have to be facts introduced sufficient to allow the jury to infer age discrimination. We don't have to have direct evidence to come in and say, uh, I'm firing you because of your age, but the jury has to find from the circumstantial evidence that age was a reason. I, I, I thought you were going to say it has to be a pretext for age It has to be a pretext for age. It can't be a pretext for hiding embezzlement. If, if he had come in there, Mr. Sanders had come in there and said, uh, actually, what I think it is, uh, I think Mr. Reed has been going with my wife, and that's the reason I fired him, and we'd have a different case. But they didn't produce any evidence of that. We, we, just, we just had the, the uh, evidence that they fired the young, and it's not just a bare-bones case. Less efficient. He got, they got every company employee said these young guys that they replaced one after one, they'd put one 30-year-old. He couldn't do the job and move another one in there, then another one. And 
less efficient, a training curve. It's going to cost the company money to put these 30 years old in there. That's what the jury believed. And when the company got up there and said this has something to do with a union contract because the workers don't like uh, don't like a supervisor being lenient, I thought the jury was going to laugh out loud. It, it can only be made seriously to a court that's not there and hasn't heard the witnesses. I ask your honor, Mr. To Wade, stand- Mr. Wade, I don't understand. I mean, in light of what what all you've said, I don't understand why question one is even presented in this case. Your Honor, it's presented because uh, you of the Fifth Circuit. That's what the Fifth Circuit said, that you've got to go further and prove something beyond. Well, you said you said it's been proved. You said you, ha- you have evidence of discriminatory intent, unless you're relying on the word direct well, evidence Honor, of discriminatory intent. Your Honor, I, I'm just trying to give the Court all the facts about my case, but the Fifth Circuit did say that it's not enough to prove pretext, and we think there is. If we never had these aid statements, it was still enough because the jury's supposed to draw the inferences. The jury draws the inferences. Does the jury believe, well, it must not have been aged because Mr. Caldwell was also? I'm sorry, Your Honor. I thought you said you agreed with the statement that, that the charge to the jury was correct, that you have to show that this was not the reason and that age discrimination was. Now you're telling me it's enough to show that this was not the reason. All right, Your Honor, I think I'm getting a little, uh, I'm saying the jury had to find age was a reason. I'm saying we don't have to prove direct evidence that nobody has to say it's age, but the jury does have to find age discrimination is a reason, like Your Honor said in St. Mary's. There, your Honor said, uh, Justice Scalia, Your Honor said exactly what we're saying in uh, St. Mary's, that the jury, the fact finder, has to find it was age discrimination, and they did. That's the jury role. Your Honor gave the jury a great role in St. Mary's. You decide whether it was age discrimination or not. The court doesn't decide. Thank you, you Mr. Wade. Thank you, The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.